All right, now I want to welcome on to Dunked On Tommy Shepard, general manager of the Washington Wizards. I will dispense with the honorifics uh, because uh, everyone knows who you are and our time is short. I want to talk to you as long as we can. How are you doing, man? I'm fantastic. I've been, I'm honored to be on Dunked On, man. I've heard this thing so many times to hear myself on there. It's going to be really crazy. Man. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I, I remember I was quite honored to know that you knew who I was uh, back when I met you at the first sports business classroom. That's part of uh, why you're on here to talk about that a, a little bit. But obviously, we need to talk uh, a little bit about uh, what's going on with the Wizards now. This is, I think, now your third season as a uh, general manager, about three years since you got elevated. Am I remembering yep. that right? Absolutely. Yeah, I I was uh, just thinking about that when I was trying to come together with some questions for you and thinking about that time when, you know, you'd been under Ernie for so long, you get elevated as as interim general manager, you know that the Wizards are looking at other candidates potentially as well, but you're in charge during the most important time of the year. So I want to just ask you from a personal perspective, how did you approach that? Because obviously there's probably a need if you want to get the job permanently to show that you can handle it, that you're going to do well, but you also need to have a, the long-term future of the organization in mind. Yeah, you know, going back to that time, Ted Leonsis couldn't have been more transparent with me when he named me as the interim general manager. He said, you will be a candidate. We're going to interview other people. In the meantime, I'm going to ask you to to run the day-to-day basketball operations and uh, I'll keep you posted. Right. So it was pretty general in terms of where, where his uh, next couple processes were going to go. But the best thing for me, I thought was, Hey, I I have the job. I have his ear day to day. Um, I'll have the ability to do the job, not try to get the job. And, you know, when when you're going to interview other people, they, they come in for a day or something. I was there every day. And actually, man, I did the, uh, we did the draft at free agency before I ever got the job. So I knew there was a high trust level there. And I just tried to never take anything for granted. We were very collaborative. Uh, we had fantastic, you know, our staff here that was uh, part of that, that moment in time where I was the interim. Uh, really, everybody pitched in. It was, it was one of those very gratifying things. And you look around, you realize you have wonderful people. I think that's our biggest resource here. But, you know, I've seen this play out other places. And, and I think that was, you know, people have sought my advice that are in similar circumstance. I said, Hey, just do the job. Don't try to get the job. You're there. Every, every decision that you're making is, is real and make sure that you keep everybody informed and collaborate and you do what's best for the franchise and you'll be fine. And then I think that was something that was really big for me, Nate. Yeah. And we've seen actually some other interim GM, Joe Cronin now is a, uh going to be the permanent GM in Portland, for example. So as we shift back now in time to this upcoming offseason, we talk about this a lot at Sports Business Classroom on Dunked On. Obviously, you talk about it in your line of work that doing a realistic self-assessment, to me, that's the beginning of trying to decide what your priorities are going to be during any transactional period. So before we even get to what that assessment is, how do you go about doing that? What is your process for determining where the Washington Wizards are as a franchise right now? Well, 
you know, we, we've tried to build this team through the draft, through trade, through free agency with a, with a blend in mind, right? We don't try to get too old, too young. We don't try to get too fancy. Uh, during the season, we've shown that, you know, this past season, we started out really hot. We were doing very well. Then COVID hit, then injuries hit, then we had uh, just, you know, some pieces that weren't quite fitting. So we had to take a step back and then right at deadline, we, we knew Bradley was going to miss the rest of the year. He only played 40 games last year. So there was an opportunity to, to go out and acquire talent. And that's ultimately what this job is about, Nate, is you got to keep acquiring talent. And we, we made a trade with Dallas where we sent out a guy that we signed in the summer in Spencer Dimwitty, guy that we had signed two summers before that in, in Davies Pertans, and they were good players for us. But to acquire a talent, like Kristaps Porzingis, I think that's kind of the name of this game is to try to continue to increase your talent. Uh, unfortunately, when Spencer left, uh, we, we also traded out Aaron Holiday. Now we have we basically don't have a, a point guard under contract, and that's temporary. Obviously, we'll address that through free agency, through trades, through the draft, whatever it takes. But you know, my job is to do what's very best for the Washington Wizards, and I felt that that was a. a a rare opportunity to increase your talent level. We took it. And, you know, I think when we assess this team, we have a lot of young players that have played rotation minutes. I think we've drafted uh, pretty meaningfully. These guys have gone out and, and been able to make impacts their rookie years, which is rare. But going back to Rui, and he was a starter for most of his first two years. Uh, we've got Corey Kispert, who was a surprise starter this year due to injury. And then Denny, Obvious, his spot started and spent a lot of time in the rotation. So I think those three guys have been able to, to carve out niches right away their rookie year. We added a lot of people through the uh, through through trades. You know, last summer we acquired Kentavious Caldwell Pope, Kyle Kuzma, and, and they came in immediately from day one and were starters. So we we changed the team a lot. I think the one consistent thing has been changed, but that's always in the pursuit of getting more talent. Yeah. So uh, as you Look at this team then, and obviously, you, you know, it doesn't take a genius to just look at who's under contract and see that there's a a point guard that's you need to bring in at, at some point in this next transactional period. But it, as you just take us through, but behind closed doors, the extent you can of just after the season, what your process is like for just a, an assessment of the team and not only where you get better, but also where you are in terms of you know being able to compete in the Eastern Conference and you know, what some of the priorities should be in the offseason. Sure. Well, I think this goes on in 30 boardrooms. When, when <laughs> the season's over, everybody gets together, and the first thing you do is you put up your roster, and you match it with your salary cap, and you really take to – it used to be a three- or four-year window, but now I'd, I'd say it's closer to two to three, where you look at a financial snapshot, where we're going, what's good for the team, where, where the tax is, how comfortable you are going into the tax versus the performance of the team. I think that's very important, uh, you know, to be quite frank with you. You know, there's there's a lot of money that's being spent that, that sometimes comes back to bite you in the butt, right? If you're going into the tax, it's with the idea, hey, this team will compete for a championship. We weren't there this year. I, I know our ownership group has no qualms about it in the future when this team's ready. Going into the tax is not going to be an issue, but to get to that point, you know, you're going to have to have some guys that really come in, prove themselves worthy of contract extensions, the guys that you acquire that can, you know, seamlessly make this team better. 
I think we were on our track a, a year ago. We had acquired Russell Westbrook in the summer. He came in. Uh, we, we had a really difficult start to the season. We ended the season 17 and six, made the playoffs basically at the end of the season. Went up against Philly, got sent home. We learned a lot, but you know, in, in a 4 1 series, you know that hey, they had more talent than us. We ran out of talent. But in that process, Daniel Gaffer, Rui Atamura, some of our young guys were all able to get playoff experience. That was very, very valuable. And I think that's something that you got to propel forward. You know, our expectations for this team, we look up on the board, we got a couple holes to fill, but, you know, your best players have to play their best. And then you got to fill the gaps meaningfully with, with guys that have their, they're going to be really great in their role. And I think that's going to be something to really focus on. This summer is all about player development. It's all about relationships, making sure everybody really clear about what their role is moving forward. I think the, the opportunities will be there for us to get better certainly through the draft, but trades, free agency. Uh, I know that already just having spent the last two weeks with uh, the NBA gypsy caravan as we go across the United States, <laughs> uh, being able to spend time with every team, you know, kind of get an idea what they're looking for, what we what we are trying to do, and just go out and match our needs. And that that's stuff that's exciting, and it's certainly been in process, but it's forthcoming, right? And I think everything that we've done here, Nate, uh, we're, we're usually really – radio silent here you don't hear much about what we're up to and then we do a trade and on on deadline with 23 minutes left in the deadline like that's not by anything other than i just think it's wise to keep your business private and i don't think it's fair to players to see their read their names out there i don't want to send misinformation I, we don't do those things here and i think it's served us well i think the future of the nba is kind of looking at us right now we're you know, the is it the super teams that are getting there? Is it the organic teams that are getting there? Is it a, a hybrid? You know, I'm excited about these finals watching Boston. I know we were 2-2 against Boston this year. We were 1-1 against Golden State. I'm not comparing us to those teams, but I'm just saying we, we've had some really good wins last year. So we know what we're capable of doing when we're healthy. We know what we're capable of doing when we're locked in on the defensive end. Um, unfortunately, we did get dunked on a few times. We were not the best defensive team. <laughs> And that's our priority this summer is to get better defensively. All right, that's uh, that's good to hear. Um, that was a shameless plug. Shameless. <laughs> it's just it's just a pretty good room protection with Gafford and Porzingis. Maybe it won't yeah. happen as much. No, no, uh, absolutely. And Chris Tapps came on the second half of the season. You know, you have to really analyze it in in bite sized pieces because right when he came here, we, we held him out intentionally to make sure he was 100% healthy. Yeah. We had about 11, 12 game stretch down the stretch where we felt he, we got the most out of him and that he had had in, a, in a, over a year where he was really effective at both ends. We were able to throw a saddle on him in a few games and he, he, he rode us to the, to the winds uh, down the stretch. And that was really gratifying to see. And now you got to see how he and Bradley fit together because they weren't ever able to play together. But right. I think it's really important as we we look at what you have. Don't ever look over the fence yet. Look at look at what you have in your roster and make sure you're really well aware of what you have. Make sure that you're excited about those pieces, and then you kind of have to decide which pieces uh, stay, which pieces go. That's every team in the league does at this time of year. So I, this is a, a question that I've always kind of struggled with as I try to assess teams. You look at all thirty teams, obviously not near the depth that the their own organizations do. But one of the things that I always felt like if I were in your shoes that I would want to know from ownership is what is the goal of this organization, both in the short 
and long term? Are we trying to win one championship? Are we trying to win multiple championships? Are we trying to just be a consistent playoff team? Are we trying to be a consistent home court advantage team in the playoffs? Then maybe you know we can add another piece and win a championship. So I wanted to ask you, you know, has it been communicated to you what the short and long term goals of this organization? are and then of course uh, how does that affect you from a transactional standpoint well certainly and ted is one of the most transparent owners in all the professional sports and he makes it very clear hey our expectation is to continue to get better but let's build a team that people care about let's build a team with high character guys high talented players that worked out well together i don't think there's a mandate that we have to win a championship next year but get better every year and continue to really push uh, where we think our talent level is to, to get better talent. However, that is, if you develop it, if you continue to draft, if you, it's free agency, if it's trades, whatever we're doing to have a purpose, you know, nobody climbs ever straight up. You got to, sometimes you got to do switchbacks. Sometimes you go to base camp. You know, we, when we made the trade at deadline this year, it's because we knew, hey, it's going to be really difficult to get to the playoffs without Bradley Bill. Right? We knew when that injury was over, he was done for the year. At, at that moment, we made a decision. Hey, let's look to be opportunistic. In the trade deadline, which is what we did. And then there's an example there where, you know, Davis Bertans was one of the top shooters in the NBA two summers ago. We, we made a big commitment to him, but then we, we drafted Corey Kisper and Kisper came in and really, you know, because of injury, because of COVID, he got a lot of opportunities to play. And that kind of forced our hand to say, Hey, we're going to need to give him more minutes. So that made that, that other position became a little bit expendable. It was a, it was a hell of a luxury to have. So that made that trade. How much, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's easy. Trades are never easy, but that made that trade optimal for both sides because Dallas was looking for depth. We were looking for a, another star to put next to Bradley, and I think that's what Chris Tapps could possibly be for us in the future. But, you know, with ownership, Nate, it, it's tough because if you ask 29 other people that do what I do, you, you got to understand what their ownership group looks like. A lot of teams are yeah. being sold. There are process. Some are being sold right now. Some were just sold to new people. Other teams are on the block. So, you know, anybody that claims to know exactly what ownership is expecting, you know, it, it almost depends on the day and the financial market <laughs> what we're in. I, Ted is invested. He's heavily involved with all of his sports businesses, and he's a fantastic person that I can lean on for advice. But he's been very much of a, hey, we trust you to do your job. Go do it. You know, let's make sure we can explain everything that we do that has a purpose. And, and the purpose really is to, to go towards winning, you know, and sometimes winning starts with a good couple of years of draft picks and, and what that becomes. Hopefully those players play for your team, but hopefully their value around the league is also high. And, and those, and those kinds of things really matter when you're trying to make deals is that you have quality players on your team. And so I think for our ownership, certainly to get better, we'd like to be in the playoffs every year. We'd like to continue to succeed as we push through. And, you know, I think we, a couple of times we've been on that, that, that trajectory and then injury brought us down, quite frankly, you know, if you review yeah. back, we were in game seven with Boston, the conference semifinals a few years back. And then John Wall never, John Wall played 40 games after that for us. Well, you can't take John Wall off of a team with Bradley Beal and think that that's going to be the same team. One of the benefits of, of that time when John was injured is Bradley really took a lot on his shoulders in terms of the scoring load, but also as a secondary playmaker. And really, he can, he can spell for at times at, at point guard now. So we feel that we have some backcourt presence there. We feel that there's some free agents that we've had here that we could possibly bring back that could help fill that void as well. But I think you learn a lot about your team in adversity. And adversity has really been different the last two years 
as you know, you know, I don't want to really review <laughs> the, the COVID that's happened in the league and, and being in a bubble in Orlando, all those things, but those things are real and we have to figure out projecting forward. That's here to stay. We, we've got to have a team that you, you probably want to make sure your G league team has extra players that, you know, could, could uh, come in and pinch it. And there's going to be nights that people are not going to be able to go. And, and that, that's something that now, as we build our teams moving forward, we have to have an eye on that. That's going to affect your wins losses. That's going to affect the bottom line. A lot of nights, you know, we, we went through a stretch where we didn't have, I think we ended up with the most players uh, that were in a uniform last season of any team in the league. Well, that's hard to say that, we, you know, you're going to make the playoffs with that. It's not an excuse. It's just a fact. But how can we meaningfully, looking forward, how can you make sure that you impact uh, your roster with more depth? It's going to be a lot of it's just going to be how we utilize players on the G League team, to be honest with you. So you mentioned Bradley Beal. I, I'm just going to ask you flat out here. Do you intend to offer him the maximum uh, that he could get, which if he were to opt out would be $250 million over five years? Do you intend to make that offer to him? We've been consistent in saying our plans are to bring Bradley Beal back here. And now I think he's been consistent in saying this is where he'd like to be. So we'll solve all that in, in due time when the free agency opens. Certainly that'll be our first meeting. But I feel very comfortable that Bradley, one of the best players at his position, Certainly when he's healthy, if you go back two years ago, he led the league in scoring for pretty much, you know, 95% of the season. Uh, he's been a tremendous asset to this organization on and off the floor. I, I really think his game has matured where he can do so many more things now than, than just being a catch-and-shoot player. Defensively, we're going to challenge him to, to really increase and be one of the quarterbacks of our defense. But I've made it clear that we intend on keeping him, and he's he's – seems to be signaling that he'd like to stay here. So we got to make that happen. And assuming I'm not going to answer your question. (laughs) (laughs) We can't get into financials. That's a league rule. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you could say what you plan to offer him. You you can't say whether you've had those discussions yet, but I think you could say we plan to offer him something, but I I certainly Uh, understand why you would decline to answer nonetheless, but I, I, I wouldn't ask you to say something that you're not allowed to say, but, uh, it, assuming that you are able to bring Bradley back, uh, what is your assessment then? And, and you can maybe address the, the point guard situation uh, with a, a starting quality player. What's your assessment of where this team is right now in the Eastern Conference? Like what uh, a successful season might be for next year? Well, certainly getting back to the playoffs. You know, I think that's going to be everybody's focus this summer is player development and and when I say player development, it's certainly on the floor, but unity off the court. You know, we have so many new players and a lot of guys that, you know, we, we had seasons that were interrupted left and right last year. Rui, you know, it's very hard, Nate, you've been around for a player that misses training camp, that misses preseason to really have much of an impact. Rui missed more than half the year. And then he came back and Bradley missed the other half of the year. And we acquired Perzingis. He only played an X number of games. So a lot of players actually here didn't play together last year. So we're we're going to do a lot of this summer of just spending time with our guys. And I think organically they're hanging out together, working out together. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing the unity that these players bring back. That's what we're really working on. The, the talent is there. We have talented players. Uh, and certainly uh, the depth is building up. We continue to do that. And then we're going to be opportunistic if it's through the draft, through free agency, through trade at the, at the obviously the glaring need is that point guard. But We've had those needs before, and we'll continue to try to 
address them the best that we can or what's best for the Wizards. But I feel a lot better with you have Bradley Beal back in the fold. You acquired Chris Stapps. You have Pope. You have Kuzma. You got young players underneath them. You know, those are pretty experienced players. Some guys have been all-stars. Some guys have won rings. You know, that only helps us in our basketball IQ and our basketball knowledge. The experience is really huge. And they showed last year they can help bring some players along. You know, Corey Kispert really benefited from playing under Pope and next to Pope and with Kuz. And I think, you know, that's just one example. Denny probably had his best stretch in the NBA. Uh, when, when Chris Tapps was here, Sadoransky was there, that they were able to, to bring him up a notch. And that's what the best players do. They make everybody around them better. So that's what we're looking forward to. So before we talk a little bit about sports business classroom, last question I wanted to ask you was uh, since, uh, you know, you're so, somewhat beholden at times to the questions that you're asked in the media. As you just think about this team, what is something that you think about the Wizards doesn't get enough discussion in the media? Something that you just really would like to highlight, whether it's an underrated player or, or coach or, or just something about the performance of the team these last few years. As you think about it, what's something about your team that we should be talking about more? Well, listen, I, I respect the job the media has, and I'm not here to set the the agenda. The messaging really is going to come by wins and losses. You know, you can judge me by what I say or what I do. So I look at the actions of what we've been able to do over the last three years when I said we were going to be here to acquire talent and get better. I think we've done those things. We've been hit by injury. We've been hit by COVID. There's no doubt. But so is everybody else in the league. You know, I think this year showed us that, hey, when you take your best player off of any team in the league, they're going to struggle. And Bradley's our best player, make no mistake. But because he was out, other players were able to thrive and show us what they can do. And we were able to get a better evaluation of some of the younger players. But for me, when I look at this in total, right, with the Wizards, I think we have fantastic guys. They're, they're great character players that care a great deal about themselves, about their team, about the community. And I, th- I think we have a fantastic coach in Wes Hill Jr. I think he learned a lot last year, your first year. That usually the best thing about your first year is when it's over and what you learn, the scars propel you forward. But I think Wes is an outstanding head coach. I think he's an outstanding uh, listener. I think he took a lot of information from our players. What we're going to do next season, you know, we're, we're working on an offense that hasn't been seen yet. When you have a guy like Chris Stapps and Beal, you, know, you can't run the same stuff. So we got to be really super creative. Defensively, I think that's something that Wes hung his hat on when he was in Denver. And that's something that we think is going to translate here, but it takes time. You know, trying to throw stuff together in the middle of the season, you know, it's going to look sloppy at times. But we have this summer to work, come together as a cohesive unit. I think that's what I would say probably is underrated part of the Wizards. I think our best resources are our people. We have great players that are wonderful people. And I think our coaching staff is, is going to get this uh, – you know, the, the challenges that face us this summer, I think you got to take them on head on and where we're headed to. I think we're, we're taking those steps already to get that corrected. Yeah. And actually one thing that I can add to answer my own question about what maybe doesn't get talked enough is, you know, when you came in, I mean, it was just a, a difficult circumstance. You had Bradley and, you know, there wasn't a, a ton, you know, as we talked about at the end of that 2019 season with, with, John, you know, looking at a long-term injury and, you know, you had a 33-year-old Trevor Ariza and, you know, there really weren't 
any other long-term pieces under contract. So I think other than Thomas Bryant, who you guys brought back after that, but uh, I mean, as I just look at that roster, it's like, man, they're really, you guys have turned over pretty much everything uh, other than Bradley Beal. And you got a a nice, uh, certainly there's a talent upgrade from what you were looking at in 2019 uh, at that point. I I think so. And I think just having a little bit of some of those contracts that we, we inherited and then we were moving things around, you know, I, I wish John the very best, but when he was injured, not able to play, you're not able to replace that salary. And then when we acquired Russell, Russell was fantastic here. But then at the end of the summer, uh, when we had an opportunity, you know, we had we actually picked up Montrez Harrell in that deal as well, plus the number one pick. Uh, I mean, a first round pick. You know, that was a deal that had to be done from the Wizards' perspective for the future. As much as Russell did here, and how much I revere him as a player and the leader that he was here. For us to get, you know, two starters and Pope and Kuzma, that was uh, invaluable. So those are deals that you have to do and you have to remove yourself from the relationship piece. That's probably the hardest part about this job. You know, when you, when you trade somebody, you're not just trading them, you're trading their families, all their friends, all the memories, everything that comes together. Those were great guys. John's one of the best players ever to play for the Wizards. Russ is one of the best players ever to play ever in the NBA. And But those guys left huge footprints here, but we were able to, keep moving. And I think financially we have a pretty good future. Uh, you know, you look at our books and where the cap is going, I think we're going to be able to stay competitive, keep uh, retaining our own free agents. And, and hopefully we'll be able to do some damage this summer with, uh, with the free agent market and with trades, like I said, we'll be able to, to go in there and, and come out with some really good quality pieces. All right. Well, thanks so much uh, for joining us and looking forward to seeing you uh, at sports business classroom uh, as well. You've been a, a fixture there. Uh, we really Appreciate you stopping by, uh, talking to the students. Uh, uh, guessing we'll see you there uh, again this year. Absolutely, that's one of the best focus groups for anybody in the NBA. We we go to summer league. You're scouting every player, every coach, every medical staff, and then I always go to SPC to scout future talent. You know, people that one day we'll probably all be working for. Right? They, it's, it's, <laughs> there's so many young people that come in there that are so much more advanced uh, at their age than I ever was when, when we came in. There was none of that. You know, when I came into the league 28 years ago, you know, so much things that you learned, the, the league was much, much smaller then, but a lot of things you just kind of learned literally on the fly. There weren't opportunities like this to learn from people that are in the in the industry. I think that's one thing that makes the SBC elite among other, any other opportunity. I guess the best word for it is the, the access. You're going straight line, talking to people that are in it every single day that can give you real life examples, real time, uh, information and the, the fact that it's set up around summer league and free agency still given it still going on it gives you a, a sense of urgency of what goes on in the league in the summer but i think there's been tremendous talent hider from that program they'll continue to be hired from that program one of our uh key people in our franchise the, the head the general manager for the capital city go-go amber nichols was in that program there's so many people that have come to the league from that program i think it's it's just a, another great opportunity for people to to be very close to the NBA. Yeah. And that is July 10th through 15th in Las Vegas. Registration is now open. You're immersed during that six days in the NBA summer league. You can go to sportsbusinessclassroom.com for more information or to register. And you can use that familiar dunked on cap space code for $300 off. And Tommy, thanks again for joining us and looking forward to catching up more in Vegas. Nate, thank you so much, man. Appreciate you having me on.
It's the NBA's dream matchup in these finals. Warriors versus Celtics, probably the highest rated potential matchup that they could have gotten. And I think it's a dream matchup also. I am really excited about it. The more I started thinking about it, the more I think this is going to be a very good, very close series, which wasn't quite my initial impression, but we'll get into why that is in just a bit. So let's begin, Danny. What are some of the big themes that you're going to be looking Looking for in this series. How do these teams tactically, especially on the defensive end, approach the other team's star players? So for Kem Pelton had this in his preview piece that the historically the Celtics have done a very good job defending Stephen Curry. But a lot of that was in a different era back when they had Avery Bradley and it was kind of a different defensive scheme. Since then, Curry has been below his normal standard, but not much, like about 4% worse than his normal standard. So what schemes does this Boston... Is, this is in previous matchups with Boston. Yes, correct. Yeah, so it's, he did it based on game score. And that gets it. For, so when we're talking about Boston defending Stephen Curry, it's what scheme do you want to use what are the matchups that you are comfortable with what are the no-gos are you what what are you scramming and switching and and doubling to get to avoid and then it's a similar story with how the Warriors want to handle Jason Tatum let's start with Curry and Marcus Smart is probably I would say the guy I would most want in the league to play against Steph Curry if you were just not going to switch everything if you were just going to go one-on-one Dylan Brooks is up there too but if they wanted to try to go a more conventional style i think they may have the personnel to do that now clearly they will switch everything probably at least one through three when you've got Brown and tatum in their starting group horford and robert williams up front probably i would say they will switch everything one through four when grant williams is in the game the question then becomes what are they going to do in actions involving horford and rob williams are they going to switch that that there's we haven't seen much evidence of what would happen there in the last game that these two teams played against each other steph had one play in transition where he was able to step back on horford and hit a three going to his left which of course is his favorite thing to do these days in isolation what is your feeling on how the celtics will deal with actions involving steph curry jordan Poole, and clay thompson versus their bigs and how do you think it will go my inclination is that the celtics will be more comfortable putting their bigs on those islands than the mavericks were was something that surprised us particularly early in that series curry has looked better i mean we were skeptical after the second round that Curry really had that isolation juice and he did a nice job but the Celtics have better defenders than the Mavericks do and those specific you know like guarding Stephen Curry and as the my biggest qualm with Robert Williams is that he hasn't looked right physically like if this was 100% Robert Williams I would be even more confident that he could hold his own for stretches of possessions and all that now a eh, little bit a little bit less certain I don't even know like it seems like with his injury it's just going to be touch and go the entire remainder of the season which is these finals so okay we'll we'll just have to see how that goes but what I like about the Celtics there is that if it, you know, it, I guess you could think of this as a version of counterpunching is that if it doesn't work, if you can't put Horford and Robert Williams reliably on Curry and smart is probably the keystone of this, 
you don't have to go with the switching approach. They can do other things and defend the Warriors well. Yeah, Williams is just such a key figure to me, Robert Williams, in this series. Because you saw it just briefly in that game before stuff went down in March that he really caused problems for the Warriors. He blocked a few shots kind of coming out of nowhere. The Warriors have been awesome finishing at the rim in these playoffs. But the really the only times that I think they have struggled, and this even goes back to the last couple of years as well, or going back to the Dynasty era, which I guess this still is the Dynasty era, but 2019 and earlier, we'll say, two things cause them issues. Number one are defenses that have sharks that can pressure, that can force turnovers. I think the Celtics definitely checked that box. But then also, do they have great rim protection and athleticism? And that goes into forcing the turnovers as well. But we've seen when they really run in into trouble these two things compound upon one another when they get to the basket and it's oh actually no i'm flying out of control at the rim but i don't have the shot here either they'll miss the layup give up transition the other way they'll get blocked or they'll have to kind of emergency pass out somewhere else and that can then lead to turnovers or you're just when you're on the move under the basket trying to make a pass those are more likely to get intercepted as well and a lot of guys Steph, Draymond in particular Looney Poole less susceptible but he actually got blocked a couple of times by Robert Williams as well even though he's largely been a better finisher I think than some of the other guys I mentioned but when the Warriors can't convert on the openings that their offense creates due to their great shooting at the rim you know they throw the great backdoor pass and then it gets wiped away or Draymond does the fake DHO breaks to the basket he should be wide open but an athletic rim protector comes over and is there to bother him and force him to make the next pass or block his shot that's when things can start to look kind of ugly for Golden State and while I do think Tatum is an excellent help defender for his position and and that's going to be an important aspect his rim protection and I think Horford is a pretty good big man defender at the rim but not you know one of the absolute best rim protectors Rob Williams to me is the guy that takes this Celtics team potentially if healthy from a great matchup against the Warriors with their perimeter talent to maybe the best matchup against Golden State that we've seen in this entire run yeah I I think there's a lot of truth to that and unfortunately we're just gonna have to see with Robert Williams and he's gonna miss games probably potentially and look limited in some and then others he's doing great and we saw with Jimmy Butler's knee as well during the Eastern Conference Finals and the Celtics have more functional depth but if Williams isn't himself they don't have a functional replacement there like they just have other good players who do yeah. other who do other things but and like D- daniel tice probably is not someone that you want going up against golden state and some of their good lineups for sure exactly so um, which do yeah, you well, want like, do you want to stay with when the rob warriors too. have the ball or do you want to shift to tatum and... let, let me talk a little bit more about rob first again okay. seeing him as, as such a key figure they're going to try to keep him out of the action the celtics are that's been their mo all season to try to pre-switch stuff keep him on the back line golden state is particularly with two and I think a lot of the time three great shooters on the floor and their movement everyone is involved the ball is moving from side to side I think the Celtics will be hard pressed in most alignments to keep Williams totally out of the action 
So what happens then when he is involved? Are you going to just, we'll fight over the screen on that? We're going to test Steph Curry and Jordan Poole and Clay Thompson to hit shots in that situation with a good rear view contest with our elite perimeter defenders like Marcus Smart and Derek White in particular? I, I would definitely give that a shot. I would I think too. at times. if And let's see if Golden State can go nuts. And you're not going to give them all one look, obviously. Surely there'll be two on the ball at times as well that the, will go to that. I don't think you want to give a steady diet of that either but particularly i think when rob is on the floor if you can keep rob out of the initial action put two on the ball they're pretty well equipped to play that four on three particularly if it's draymond or looney the guy attacking out of that and you've got rob williams under the basket and also they have elite guys on the perimeter who can recover i feel okay about that four and three and then particularly also if you don't have both pool and clay on the floor with Steph, and there's only one just absolute elite shooter that you have to worry about outside of the guy whose hands you just took the ball out of right so I, and, I, yeah and that's Go why ahead. to me another key differentiator in this series is going to be how much can the warriors keep kevon looney on the floor and this came up a little bit when we were kind of speculating on the series both both on Spotify Live previously and on the pod before we knew the final matchup. Looney, I'm far more concerned about him from the Warriors' perspective on offense than on defense because Robert Williams, he was guarding P.J. Tucker and actually blocked, you know, those corner threes and everything else. But if Williams and Looney are sharing the floor, it becomes so much easier to use him as a roamer because Looney did a better job than we've ever seen and credit to the coaching staff in those kind of advantage situations during the conference finals. But if the if you think you can you know hold your own kind of use an extra half defender or whatever to to help off of Looney the Warriors will make you pay but they won't make you pay enough yeah and I'm interested to see when it is Draymond at center and the, the Warriors also have some health things that we'll get to too with the possible return of Iguodala and Gary Payton and Otto Porter will they go smaller in this series I and mean, some of their best lineups included Looney maybe that won't be the case I think their best defensive lineups will include Looney in this series and we'll talk about that uh, on the other end that I think he if he and Draymond are out there together I do think that Boston is going to have some trouble scoring in this series but yeah that'll be fascinating and then if Looney is out of the game how do you feel if you're Boston about keeping Rob Williams in the game, you know, put him on Otto Porter or Gary Payton if he's playing or Iguodala if he's playing. Yeah, you know, they, they might feel okay about that. I don't think they're going to want to have Robert Williams on Draymond because Draymond's just too quick, too smart. He's too good at causing miscommunications. Robert Williams, for all of his physical brilliance, is still not the most cerebral defender. And particularly if his movement is a little bit limited, having him way out on the floor on those draymond dho's and pick and rolls might be a little bit difficult you know maybe in that case they'll just go to the trap but if you're trapping with rob williams 25 feet from the basket you're kind of negating the purpose of having him out there to begin with so and he also gives you less ability to play five out on the offensive end and the warriors are probably the best team there is at taking advantage when you have a non-shooter on the floor even if it's a big who can get some alley-oops and stuff but just when they have a guy that they don't have to guard at the three-point line like they are so good at mucking up the driving lanes for the other team so that's why I still I see Rob as such a big figure in the series and now maybe he's just going to be so injured that he's not going to be effective and then we'll get into some other groups but yeah let's continue here to talk about some of the other issues that the Celtics are going to have guarding the Warriors or vice versa the Warriors going at the Celtics defense the Warriors 
turned over a new leaf at a couple points in these playoffs where they've become a much better rebounding team, specifically offensive rebounding. And the Celtics, honestly, whether they're playing a switching system or not, they just are they're a less reliable defensive rebounding team. There were points when the possession game was hugely in Miami's favor. It's how they stayed alive in some of the games of that seven game series. And the Warriors will be opportunistic with it. I don't think it's going to be a consistent pressure from Looney or Draymond or the guards or anything else. But as I've said a lot over these last seven, eight years, if the Warriors can be close or win the possession battle, and that's turnovers, offensive rebounding, they are incredibly hard to beat. Yeah, and avoiding turnovers, obviously, is going to be massive. There are going to be guys like White and Smart trying to take charges. They'll be denying out on the floor in the passing lanes. Tatum is one of the best nail defenders in the NBA, although he hasn't had quite as much of a defensive impact since the first round in these playoffs when he was guarding KD. Um, he did spend some time on Butler in Game 6, but that, that'll be interesting to see him more out on the floor like he's gonna have to defend more on ball against smaller quicker guards as well so I, I guess the other thing to look at is let's say Grant Williams is in the game will they switch with Al Horford you know I think Poole Curry those guys I think could be able to attack and beat Horford but then it also just depends who else is on the floor you know if Rob Williams is still behind him and you've got Draymond and Looney on I might be actually more willing to switch with Horford when Rob Williams is on the floor and presumably Looney and Draymond are also both on the floor than when Horford is at center because you you just don't have a lot less help Right, right, exactly. If you if he gets by you, then you've still got Rob Williams there to kind of clean things up. The Mavs did try to go to some switching. It worked a little bit in Game 4. Then they got completely destroyed in Game 5 doing that. And I've always felt like switching was the way against Golden State. That's what worked against them back in 2016. That's what worked against them in 2018 within that Rockets series. Particularly with KD, it seemed like kind of the only way to do it. Now, though, especially since they have even more shooting and just overall pace, they may actually just be too smart for that. We'll see whether Boston has done a lot of switching throughout the season. So we'll see whether Boston is able to kind of keep up, force the Warriors to isolate. Certainly they should try that as well. And I would even consider trying some groups with Grant Williams at center and no Horford or Rob Williams and see how that went. Go with White and Smart, the two wings, and then Grant Williams at center. See how that looks. Then I think you really could go with a full out switching group group and maybe that could particularly when the warriors go with their three guards which we'll talk about how tenable that is on the other end that they might try to give that a shot still al horford's a really good player i don't know if you want to close without al horford but that's uh, something that we'll be looking at as well i wanted to ask you a question here danny i alluded to it earlier is this celtics defense the best equipped team to guard Steph Curry that we've seen in this Warriors run since Steph Curry really emerged onto the scene in 2013? Yes, I I think that they are. And a lot of that is the potential scheme versatility. You have a guy who can chase Steph Curry around all these actions, like what Marcus Smart can do. And we've seen other teams have those players to be sure. But also that threat of rim protection, the viability of switching lineups, and so many other players that can hold their own. If I would be more comfortable with as Ime Udoka than basically any other coach in the league to put random player X who actually plays in this series in some of those most dangerous matchups. And they also 
have the communication most of the time and personnel to to take care of some of the other things that the Warriors do well. And we saw the Mavs sell out really hard to not only stop Stephen Curry, but also to stop Clay. And depending on who's out there, I, I think that the, the Warriors will have trouble getting some of those same seams. And then the other huge component of this, and you brought this up, is the Celtics, I would say particularly over the course of the series, there's going to be an adjustment for both these teams, but I would say especially for the Celtics in game one of the Warriors offense and everything functions so differently for them than any other team that they faced. And the Celtics Warriors only play twice a year. They, you know, those matchups aren't necessarily dispositive because players can be out and everything else. But the Warriors have some specific like reads and specific passes that they really like to make. And Golden State has a propensity to throw the ball kind of to throw the ball over if they can't find something they'll, they'll just kind of throw it anyway or going for not even a home run pass but like an aggressive single pass you know like you're not going to get anything out of that necessarily boston doesn't have to me memphis's overall like a- athleticism and activity but they have smarter defenders and they have enough length to really cause some problems and they have this you know they have the philosophy that they're going to do that anyway and so boston was top 10 after january january 1st which is kind of like that loosely coincides with when things were really kicked up and forcing turnovers the Warriors during that same stretch 25th and turning the ball over so I think what what makes Boston the best matchup is that they can do a lot of different things and I don't think there are too many matchups or too many situations where they're going to be horrendously overmatched no I, I think that's right like there just isn't a place to attack if you look back at some of the teams that have played the Warriors well 2016 Oklahoma City really caused problems for them throughout most of that series but of course Steph Curry was not himself in that series and you know they went the Oklahoma City switched everything they went to the mega death lineup with a still young and athletic Serge Ibaka at center it really forced the Warriors to either take very difficult shots right as the switch was taking place or to just drive by them and beat them and you know that team still had Russell Westbrook who was prone to some miscommunications and also that team wasn't really able to score that well by the end of that series and that transition helped the Warriors 2018 Houston was another one certainly that really forced Golden State to play in the mud now they had KD they weren't doing as much of the ball movement stuff they also were had a young Looney a young Jordan Bell Iguodala was out a lot of that series it didn't they didn't really force the start slowing them down in that series until Iguodala went out and they really just had to you know they weren't as complete of an offensive team I think this team obviously Curry and Clay are not at the peak of their powers and they don't have KD anymore but this Warriors offense is much more complete than you know to have both Poole and Wiggins who can attack you know we haven't mentioned Wiggins much yet at all uh to have more shooting than they've ever had and you know Draymond's probably not as good offensively either Looney is probably actually finishing better than he ever has the offensive rebounding is a component that they've never really had before um the other team that would be in that as far as the best defenses they face is 2009 toronto or sorry 2019 toronto but the warriors just were so limited in that series as well where they could just go box and one against Steph, and they they're playing like quinn cook and alfonso mckinney and demarcus cousins on one leg yeah so those i think, are all you, great I think you could make an argument that on paper that 19 raptor 
Lakers team is better, better equipped yeah. than this Celtics team. But it's not going to be an apples to apples comparison because that Warriors, they didn't face the Warriors in that respect for a lot of that series. Yeah. And they faced them for about a quarter, basically, until <laughs> KD tore his Achilles. But yeah, certainly. I mean, those are the three that stick out to me as being the best equipped to handle stuff. But yeah, I mean, and this Celtics defense just overall to me is one of the best defenses that we've seen. But I mean, I think it's just worth noting. And maybe again, this is something that I just didn't appreciate enough. Like Golden State is the number one offense in the postseason by quite a bit. The number two offense actually being Brooklyn, <laughs> hilariously enough. Uh, but and in that Mavs series, the Warriors, despite not even having, I think they only really had one nuclear three-point shooting game, a 124 offensive rating in non-garbage time in that Mavs series against a, a defense that had been a very solid defense that had pretty good versatility. But the difference is that the Celtics don't have a Luka to attack. I mean, there's maybe that's now made easier. Like the Warriors system is just easier against... Uh, or, or not easier but just better against a team that doesn't have like one specific weak link where you can just keep moving the ball and try to find something but uh yeah i don't know what, what else do you want to say about the warriors offense here we're going to see the inclusion potentially of some players back into the rotation gary payton you know the he's going to be it looks like a game time decision on thursday per shamstrania that that is very good sign not necessarily for him playing in game one but him coming back at some point during the series it seems positive from what i've seen on on Otto Porter and to a lesser extent Andre Guadala that changes how the Warriors function on both ends of the floor and this has come up a fair amount for us and and I I like that we have gotten better at describing this and so Gary Payton the second this year shot 36 percent on threes and you know he was playing regular rotation minutes when he's been available 1200 minutes on the season however he has only attempted 3.5 three-pointers per 36 minutes and the value proposition of leaving him more open maybe not all the way open but leaving him more open open and conceding those threes versus having somebody stick on him when the Warriors have their best offensive talent on the floor it poses some different questions for the Celtics and I think it might create some problems for Golden State well I actually think GP is a positive offensive player for them now yeah shooting wide open corner threes every once in a while like he's not gonna get carded you know maybe they can put Rob Williams on him or they could put Horford on him but he's so fast and he has so much athleticism he's so good as a finisher that I think he's still a positive slipping out of screens he'll get loose balls offensive rebounds and also obviously his defense sure he's maybe the best turnover forcing guard in basketball that if he can be himself defensively which hey when your elbow's messed up you know maybe you don't want to stick your hand in there as much like i'm not going to assume that he's going to be 100 percent, but he can juice their transition attack as well and Boston has a pretty good transition defense, but we've seen that they turn the ball over a fair amount as well, and Miami really caused them problems with that. And Golden State is so difficult to guard in transition due to their ability to spread the floor, Clay, Steph, and Poole taking trail threes, and then Draymond pushing the ball with those three guys around him, and then also GP adds a, another element with well, his and, incredible athleticism spreading the floor. And that ties in with another thing that I wanted to discuss at some point during this, but this there might not be a better point is the shift in pacing of the of the NBA finals versus what the other teams have done and so Boston did look tired at many points in the Eastern Conference finals they're playing a lot of high stress well, they, minutes. but they looked less tired than the two teams they played because those That's teams true. were so shorthanded yeah it was so shorthanded and for Boston you know they they had those moments but they also have a lot of capable players they dealt with foul trouble in, without having to sacrifice too much in terms of team quality and then for the Warriors the the 
thing that makes them even harder to stop offensively is when they reliably push. And in an ideal world that is regularly off of live rebounds, off of course steals, but also off of made baskets. And that will be significantly more realistic for Golden State because the finals is is more measured. You know, it's not every other day for the whole series. They're often two days off and they're timing this out for television viewing and everything else. And so I would anticipate and, and I, I support that. I think that the finals being being more spread out gives the ability for the best players to play more and to play harder. And my instinct is that helps the Warriors more than it helps the Celtics specifically in transition offense. Yeah, I think so. Just because they generally have older players Horford, though, I think he wore down by the end of that Miami series to some degree, particularly on offense. And Rob Williams, just his issue is he gets swelling in his knee and then he has to rest and then he can come back. So having more of a break in between games, there probably also is just more of an ability for Jason Tatum to just play 45 minutes every game. And same thing with Jalen Brown, which I think is an advantage. I don't think the Warriors want to play any of their guys more than 40 minutes. Certainly not early in the series, you would think. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit more about when Boston has the ball now? Yeah, we can do that. And so a place that I want to start is that Boston since you know using january 1st as the inflection point when their season really turned around during that time league's best cleaning the glass net rating plus 12.1 the celtics have been below league average in three of the overall eight four factors because you have four on offense four on defense one is defensive rebounding not a surprise there the other two turning the ball over on offense and not getting to the free throw line they're far from the bottom of the league during that stretch in either of those but I've been thinking about how those could potentially cause problems in the NBA Finals because the Celtics turning the ball over, I brought up the possession game being so central for both of these teams during their playoff runs. That's a potential challenge for them, but also getting to the line. And that's the, the thing that I've been really interested in with the Celtics over this time. And people have been making comparisons of the, the Celtics to this team and that team that, you know, this eight year run that the Warriors have had. And what would concern me if I were a Celtics partisan is not that the Celtics have no matchups to attack. They have plenty of things that they can do. I wonder what is that advantage going to create when Jalen Brown is isolating against Stephen Curry? The best thing to me that will happen is you can get some layups, you can draw some fouls, but it's also getting help and then making the right pass. And if Jalen Brown made a ton of mid-range shots at the expense of Gabe Vincent and Max Drews, made some threes too, but are Tatum and Brown going to wreck those matchups or are they going to do fine, do well, get things that are advantageous, but not that don't cripple the Warriors defense? And I'm interested to see what the defensive philosophy is for Golden State, just overall, and then obviously the specifics of what they're willing to switch, whether they're going to switch or not, what their pick and roll coverage looks like. Because I think that's fascinating of Jason Tatum against, uh, obviously we know anything against Jordan Poole literally is a five alarm fire for Golden State. Steph Curry, Steph Curry actually started off guarding Jalen Brown in that game on March 16th, but Andrew Wiggins didn't play in that game and that totally messed up the matchups. How does it look when Kavon Looney switches on these guys? I think Looney will be a very solid matchup against Tatum, as would Draymond. Jalen Brown might actually be a little quick for Looney. You know, there He had a... a one blow by on. I mean, we're dealing with very small samples in that game that I kind of 
of perked up my eyebrows a little bit. So we'll see. You know, they also, Golden State could just decide, hey, we're going to pay a conventional pick and roll defense against you guys, except maybe when it's Jason Tatum coming off the screen. And, you know, if you're going to attack our center, even if, even if you're going to attack Draymond, that we're going to just play a little bit more conventional of a style. There's also, and so the Warriors face to me in the last two rounds, actually really the last three rounds, the best offensive player for the other team until Jaw went down was better and caused more matchup problems than anyone on the Celtics. And Tatum is, I think, a better overall player maybe than John Morant is, and maybe even a better playoff player than Nikola Jokic when you consider his defense. But I think other than just going at Steph Curry or Jordan Poole, I think Golden State would be fine having Jason Tatum go one-on-one against anyone else on their team. Tatum doesn't get downhill. He's not the same passer of any of those three guys either, necessarily. He can pass some, but I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see are they going to go for the hey we're just not going to give up three pointers we're going to just make Jalen Braun and Jason Tatum beat us one-on-one we're just going to kind of play it straight up or is their philosophy going to be hey we don't believe Derek White Marcus Smart and Al Horford who had that one great game against Milwaukee but has been shooting pretty poorly at them three since then we don't believe that those guys can beat us or we believe we can rotate to them well enough they're reluctant enough shooters uh, well Smart Smart will never be reluctant but (laughs) the other two are reluctant enough shooters that you can rotate to these guys and we'll just we can play out of that but we're not going to let Tatum or Braun get off I think we'll probably end up seeing both of those philosophies in general but I I do think particularly if if Peyton is going to be back and Iguodala is going to be back like I think I don't know if I'm going to say that Golden State's defense is better than Boston's but I think it's pretty close honestly just the the one difference is you've got Curry and Poole to attack which you don't really have on Boston but I think the rest of Golden State's personnel is as good maybe even possibly better than Boston we could also see the Warriors their level of communication and defensive intelligence if they can put some of these five-man lineups or four four defender lineups on the floor be something that Boston has really face Miami is an unbelievable defensive team but they thrive a little bit differently and if we can see Draymond and Iguodala or Peyton and Looney like they're and I mean Clay hasn't been nearly as good defensively since he returned as he was I I think he's come on though I I think he I think he I think he can guard Tatum we'll see but I think that I think he'll be I I think Tatum will be more manageable for him than Luca was for for a couple different reasons most of which we've already gone through Jalen Brown actually could be a little bit of a challenge for him because the speed guys have been as Clay has kind of transitioned defensively into a weird version of a big with these help defensive plays, that I, I my theory of it that when he came back he was going to be a three, and in some ways he's kind of like maybe more of a four. Um, but we'll we'll see where that goes moving forward. And for Boston, you, you brought up the different approaches that the Warriors can use, and how adept are they at dealing with something that the Warriors have had to deal with this entire run, which is those players who the other team is going to guard. Are they going to be more aggressive than they were in Game Six of the Eastern? conference finals about using Derek White as a screener using Marcus Smart and they did a better job to an extent in game seven but that's not why they won the game and Golden State will challenge those reluctances better than anybody I've I've seen you know like you you have to squeeze everything out especially if they're playing those best players and Boston it's especially because they're the road team in this and remember the Warriors haven't lost a home game during these playoffs and they've had some clunkers of performances that they ended up winning but they've done they've done a good job they've rallied and Boston 
by by comparison, they've been the home road hasn't mattered as much as them. It's been more like bouncing game game to game. And the Warriors we are such a different challenge for them than Miami in terms of starting slow. Boston had some games. I I, di- I regret that I didn't talk about this enough in Game Six after that when we did the pod that I thought Boston they didn't push the accelerator enough. They didn't put the pedal to the metal. They had all these talent advantages. And if you fail to capitalize against the Warriors as long as they can be remotely healthy, if they stay in the game, they will probably start playing better and be like, ah, crap, that was our chance. So another key factor, I think, here, we talk about who can guard Tatum. You know, I think the Warriors will be okay in a lot of matchups against Tatum. You know, I think they'll be okay switching Looney on to him. I'm just, I'm so fascinated to see how they're going to start because I think there's an argument to just say they should play conventional pick and roll defense against the Celtics team or that they also even could put two on the ball against them and try to fly around out of that zone. So, I mean, I think they could play normal pick and roll defense, drop coverage. They could be up to touch. They can double team. They can switch. And I do think that in the end, much like in the Miami series, it's not quite as extreme because Bam is maybe the best isolation defender in the NBA at this point. But does Boston just devolve into going after the guards? That's pretty much what their offense ended up being in that series against Miami. And they ended up getting pretty darn good stuff out of that most of the way. But I think the Warriors, to me, are probably a better defense than Miami overall, especially if they're going to get Iguodala and Peyton back and you know we'll see whether those guys are playable offensively and how they look and all that uh i think though that the pressure point again like it was in the dallas series is going to be going at the guards with tatum now i think part of the difference is that boston can attack that both ways they can use yeah. tatum as a screener on whoever pools guarding or vice versa i kind of like it sometimes even better with using tatum as the screener and they don't want to switch that or they don't want to give up a pick and pop to tatum and then just what's going to happen with jordan pool i mean that's they're obviously going to try to avoid switching him onto tatum or brown but i think actually Derek white and marcus smart can both just go right through him like we saw with tyler tyler hero like we saw with grace and Allen, that the edict well, and, is and, be, and like we yeah. saw with Reggie Bullock as well, going the other direction. Like the as the Mavericks players became emboldened to go after Pool, they had success. Yeah, I mean, even even Reggie Bullock like got him on a, on a drive on occasion. So I think the edict for Boston is going to be anytime you have Pool on you and you've got the ball in a, any kind of a transition or slight advantage situation, the defense isn't set. Just go, Derek White. Just go right through a Marcus Smart. Like he's going to knock Jordan Pool in the next Tuesday every time he tries to drive at him and the Warriors will try to get a lot of help I mean, I think that's really where they'll probably be more interested in just helping off three-point shooters is to help pool much more so than when it's just Jason Tatum trying to attack one-on-one and that that's how the Celtics are going to maybe generate three-pointers. So how much is Jordan Poole going to play in this series? And then do the Warriors say, shit, we can't score. We got to just go Steph, Poole, and Clay." Well, then I think Boston, that's probably going to be the only groups I'd expect Boston to score extremely well against in this series. Except, unless of course they're in transition because they're locking down the Warriors on the other end. I mean, I... Oh boy, the, this I, is yeah. going to be a feedback loop series for sure. <laughs> Oh yeah. I, I mean all these Boston series have been in particular. But yeah, this this one for sure. And Boston can be prone to turnovers as we've seen. The Warriors we know are prone to turnovers. Boston is probably a slightly better turnover forcing team than the Warriors. But if especially if the Warriors are gonna play Iguodala and Peyton, that probably 
equalizes some but that's gonna be we talked about how rob williams would be the pivot point potentially for boston's defense pool playing with steph and with clay boston may struggle to guard that group that might be the only group that boston i won't even necessarily say struggle because their defense is so good but that the warriors can really score with maybe that's just going to be the end of it if you're golden state maybe you're just like you know what fuck it we're not going to play Jordan pool that much in this series he's just getting lit up defensively he's the only place to attack we think we can lock these guys down and we're just going to get enough from steph and clay and wiggins and yeah our offense might not be beautiful but we think at the end of games we're going to be able to out execute you and outscore you i would actually say danny do you think that golden state is both the best offense and the best defense that boston has played in these playoffs considering brooklyn had some key players out like brooklyn's ceiling might be higher but they yeah, weren't but they, they always had two non-shooters on the floor exactly so i would say best offense sure and, and it's and, yeah. the, and the bucks were limited too you know with with chris middleton being out yeah. best defense now, I, I guess i'll say this i don't expect golden state to score 117 points per 100 possessions against this boston no. defense the way brooklyn did but and they were they weren't really that bothered by kd but they also had to give up a ton of layups to bruce brown and and stuff like that i think they thought it was worth it like it seemed like kd and kyrie were getting stopped but it really it came down to boston or brooklyn just not being able to stop them like 117 per 100 like that should be good enough to win a series i don't think golden state will score quite that well if they do i would be shocked if they don't win the series frankly um i think this is well should should we say that that this is the best the the best defense it's definitely the second best offense that they played the best defense you you got some real competition there with the yeah i mean miami and milwaukee are both really good no chris middleton i think hurt though like milwaukee even as good as lopez and Giannis were milwaukee had a lot more places to attack i would say and it, with grayson Allen and with bobby portis basically one of those two guys was always on the floor and yeah Giannis and lopez could beat that up but i mean like looking at game seven they just had to like give up 18 three-point attempts to grant williams because they just couldn't do anything else right like the warriors defense is not going to be like that i think the warriors have more versatility than the bucks did and i think Miami was just a little bit too physically hampered. Like, I think Golden State can defend them better than either of those two teams did. I don't know if they will, but I think they can. Yeah, that seems like a fair way of classifying it. And remember, they didn't, the Celtics didn't face the best iteration of the Bucs. And I mean, Milwaukee's defense at its best can be absolutely amazing. And Miami, without, and, and even in a weird way, without some of their good offensive players, too, it just, it, Boston was able to attack from advantage positions more often than you expect that they will against the Warriors. And that, and that matters, too. It's not the DeAndre jordan defensive player of the year because he's a good offensive rebounder argument but there there is an element of it and that's why this is going to be an all-timer of a of a feedback loop series what else we need to hit on i'm i'm ready to start my preamble for my prediction <laughs> let me see if i have anything else here that i wanted to hit on yeah i do think that steve kerr has more guys that he can go to if he does go to Otto porter a lot which i think he will if he's healthy and I think the break will certainly in between games should help Porter too, both from an energy standpoint and also the, with his various injuries. Porter is someone that they might be able to attack one-on-one defensively. We haven't really seen that happen as much. Um, 
so he could be another kind of pivot point a little bit and then his three-point shooting on the other end as well but he uh the Warriors mid-range game like they're gonna need to do more in the mid-range they're gonna need to get these Andrew Wiggins and Otto Porter bailout shots they're gonna need these like quick clay post-ups or something like that although I don't even know if clay other than against Pritchard can really be that effective posting up it's gonna be crazy when Golden State is just like every single guy that they attack just can't be beaten right I mean that's gonna be that's gonna be really insane and so that's particularly on the perimeter and so then when the question becomes like when you set the screen what's happening are you getting two on the ball with Horford is he in a drop coverage can you get an advantage involving their bigs that's going to be the big question to me because these perimeter guys are rock solid like you're not isoing on any of these guys if you're golden state and the bigs are really good but steph curry stresses bigs out maybe more than nba any player in nba history does with his ability to work off the ball and his three-point shooting and you know obviously just the question of like are steph clay and and pools three is going to go in you know i mean is steph curry when he's open from 26 feet on those difficult shots that nobody else can make except maybe dame lillard are those going to go in or not like that's that's going to be a huge question to me and then of course also just you know, what iguodala and peyton give them i mean my guess is going to be danny that in the end steve kerr is going to default towards more defense just locking these guys down which i think they can do pretty well and and that's what he's done yeah. overall you know right. over these we have a we have a pretty large sample size of what steve kerr wants to do when he has rotational choices both because of when they're at full strength and because of injuries and generally he has skewed defense first instead of offense first all right uh you said you were ready for your preamble let's hear it using january 1st as the proxy you know and and i know the specific date is somewhere it's like january 5th or something for when the celtics really came on boston led the league in cleaning the glass net rating plus 12.1 and you know that involves good stretches bad stretches and everything else the golden state warriors net rating when draymond green and stephen curry played together this season plus 14.7 i think because so much of it happened early in the year and clay wasn't available but they were able to do it but because of draymond's absences and everything else i think we've lost a little sight of how good this warriors team can be and they had you know certain advantages and disadvantages in the previous rounds with players getting hurt but also players getting hurt on the other teams and because of recency bias and because I mean, we, we, Steph Curry was supernova in that first like month and plus of the season. So what, how reliable that, you know, that sample is, is, is something there too. But the Warriors are a phenomenal group and I'm, I think the Celtics, of course, they can absolutely win this series and they have the, you can argue that they have this ludicrously high ceiling on defense and they could be damn great on offense at times too. So it's a close call, and I'm assuming it will be a close call for you as well. The Warriors have home yeah. court. They have a lot of talent, and I might – so I'm – you know, I, I think that this is a close call. I think that home court is going to matter, even though it hasn't mattered for the Celtics their opponents a lot during these playoffs. I'm going Warriors in seven. Yeah, you mentioned what the Warriors were early in the season, and from the beginning of the season until January 1st, the Golden State Warriors had a 103 defensive rating. The Celtics, for all their brilliance, had a 106 defensive rating after january 1st now worth noting that basically we had two different seasons this year like there was the first part of the season when way fewer fouls were being called in the perimeter and offense was way down and then the second half of the season offense was way up 
But basically, if you want to look compared to league average, both teams during the stretch when they were whole were about three points per 100 better on defense than the second best team. So these are two really, really good defenses. And particularly, again, with Golden State, in theory, getting some of their guys back. So, yeah, I'm not sure that I'm quite ready to say. Like, I think Boston has a little bit more talent defensively, and there's no Steph Curry or Jordan Poole to attack. But I do think Golden State has even more intelligence defensively than Boston does. And, and that's, to me, that's probably the biggest thing that may be missed about this series is just that Golden State is very close, I think, to Boston defensively, particularly when it comes to guarding the Boston Celtics. Uh, Golden State probably isn't going to have too many issues with finding someone who can guard both Tatum and Brown. I'm still very torn as well. I mean, I started off thinking when we thought Boston was going to win this series easily in six games against Miami that I would pick Boston in six and that if Boston had home court I would have even considered picking it in five for Boston and just as as I've thought about it more as we find out that Golden State's getting some players back as we find out that Robert Williams health has kind of deteriorated over the last couple of games and that he's going to be in and out of the lineup that changes a, a lot for me and I just don't my I think I have a pretty decent idea, I would say, of what's going to happen on Boston's offensive end. Like, I think they're going to, they'll score okay. They got some talent, but I don't think they're going to put up dominating games against Golden State unless they just go completely crazy from three. I'm just not sure what's going to happen Golden State's offense against Boston's defense. Like, my initial thought was, hey, Steph Curry has slowed down some. Jordan Poole is a nice player, but, you know, is he really going to be, if you put really good defenders on him, like, can he beat them? And, you know, Draymond can't really score. And Looney's not that great. And so it's just, it's easy to kind of focus on what Golden State, particularly when you have guys like Clay and Steph and, and even Draymond who aren't the same level of athleticism that they've been in the past. But when you really look at what this team has done offensively when they have everyone together, I mean, it's been awesome. They're the number one offense in the playoffs among teams that have played and by a significant margin among teams that have played more than one round. And my feeling is that Boston still will get the better of that matchup, but I don't know that for sure. <sighs> Yeah, I'm really, I, I really like can't decide between Golden State. I, I'm not going to, if I pick Golden State, it's not going to be in less than seven. And Boston has won, obviously, on the road plenty in these playoffs. I think this has a very, very good chance of going to a game seven. I also think actually that whoever wins game one is going to win the series. Even more so, like th that's just going to be such an indicator to me. And particularly if Boston can win game one and they get out on the right foot, like I think it's going to be tough for Golden State to respond. I don't know that I've ever in like the history of this podcast had as much trouble with the pick as I'm having right now. I'm going to go with the Boston Celtics in six games. And I still, and that's his, you know what? No, fuck it. I'm going to go Boston in seven just because again, just like the last series like i need to give golden state their respect and if golden state wins i don't want to feel like i was like oh you said boston in six like that's a blowout i mean that's just more a nod to the road team generally winning in six when they do win yeah i'm gonna go with boston in seven that's gonna be my pick and i feel absolutely terrible about it and we will continue to feel terrible about our respective picks throughout this series because i feel like that's the way this is gonna go <laughs> but yeah I, you know i I'm i so, think I'm so I, I honestly think we're gonna have a good idea of who's going to win the series by game one i think we are i think I, I will tell you right now for me i think game three is going to be i think we're because we could see some weird stuff in the first couple of games it seems to just and also they're going to have a lot of rest at the very beginning and then it's going to get a little more ragged but yeah it, I, I mean i think we're just going to know whether golden state's going to be able to score on these guys 
after game one. I think we're going to have a pretty good idea. I mean, I think there, maybe you can say Boston as the series goes on. The, the, I mean, there's going to be a, a big adjustment period for both teams, but I think we're going to just have an idea of like, oh man, is Golden State like fiending? Are they late in the shot clock on a lot of these possessions? Or are they like, no, their offense is actually running okay. And yeah, Boston causes them some problems, but like they can get decent shots. I think we're going to have a very good idea of that after game one. Oof. I think that might be the longest preview we've ever done too. I think we had one a couple of years ago that was like an hour 10. I don't, it was like a conference. Oh, you know what? I think it was a Bucks Nets. Yeah. From last year, which of course was completely rendered meaningless 43 seconds into the series. <laughs> Let's hope that doesn't happen this time. Oh, oh, please let this be a healthy series. Oh, it, yeah. Uh, yeah. every every basketball fan deserves that. Indeed. Let's get some news. We already brought up the health for the Warriors, but as it looks right now, don't have anything definitive. You know, the Warriors had a both a practice and a scrimmage earlier in the week. And I would say it looks like Gary Payton, Andre Godala, and Otto Porter will be ready early in the series, whether that's game one or game two, which makes a world of difference because it gives you not only is it good players, but it's different options to try over the course of the series. Yeah, I think so. And it just what kind of shape Payton and Iguodala and Porter are going to be in. I mean, I think that's going to be big. I mean, that's like three of their top nine players in theory that might be available. And Peyton in particular, like if he could be a, he actually might be a, a pretty good defensive option on Jalen Braun, I would think. Sorry, our preview's over. Let's stop it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, let's get to a few other things here. As I figured was probably the case, this whole Tim Connolly equity thing in Minnesota was massively overblown in the initial reporting. Woj being like, oh, he's got the chance for life-changing money with this equity. It's all the equity. Oh, no, actually, it's that he's making $8 million a year and that the Denver Nuggets wouldn't come close to matching that. And the he has not actually gotten an ownership piece. Instead, his contract contains a bonus based on the value of the franchise increasing over the term of his contract, and that was confirmed today at his intro conference by Glenn Taylor. So again, I mean, it was it was great to make it look like he was getting a ton. Everybody had the incentive to play that up, but yeah, it's uh, it wasn't a big deal. It's that because it was like, oh, the Denver, oh yeah, well equity, hey, we can't compete with that, right? Like, no, you could have just paid him more, and you would have been fine. They just didn't want to. We've also gotten some new trade scuttlebutt and not a huge surprise you know teams are looking for players who can help and wings are an incredibly scarce commodity around the league and that's led to speculation about and i believe it's from this from jake fisher right about og and anobi and the the challenge here for other general managers is that there is no rush there's no reason that the Masai Ujiri and the Raptors need to trade OG Anadobi at all. He has two more years under contract after this one, plus a player option where they would have full board rights and everything else. OG's a very good player who fits what they're trying to do. And so it isn't, it simultaneously is not a surprise that teams like the Portland Trailblazers and the Miami Heat are interested in Anadobi. The fundamental problem, I don't know why I mentioned the Heat. I don't know if they were in Fisher's reporting. I think I saw Precious Chua and my brain went the wrong direction. Anyway, um, that teams are interested in OG. I I just don't think a deal will materialize because the Raptors are justifiably asking for a whole bunch. 
yeah league personnel and again this is to be clear this is stuff filtering through to other teams maybe they want to acquire Ananobi it wouldn't be shocking though I mean we've seen a lot of guys like Jeremy Grant who's being talked about in maybe the same wing sweepstakes to the extent it even exists with Ananobi that OG had had some chances particularly last year to operate more with the ball then Scotty Barnes comes in so he's really now again the fourth option he's not getting many chances to initiate offensively and with two years left on his deal they part of why he signed that three plus one took a little bit less was to get out of his contract earlier we've seen wings develop more offensively he certainly has the physical profile to be able to do more so this isn't like totally insane to me that this would be a storyline but that said uh the league personnel believe toronto would require far more than say josh hart and the seventh pick to move ananobi and i I think that's fair to me a guy on a contract like ogs with his skill set one of the best isolation defenders in the league makes threes when he's open can do some stuff on the ball good transition player all that yeah i think he's worth more than the seventh pick and and a role player so i i would be holding out for more and I like you said Danny like I don't think there's a reason to trade him right now let's see how this year goes in Toronto and whether they can be a contender and then if he has a year left on his contract or it's the trade deadline and you get a feeling as your Toronto that hey maybe we're further away than we think we are we're not necessarily a contender maybe Fred Van Vliet is too expensive to extend or he might leave in free agency and we're going to go into like a straight rebuild around Scotty Barnes then maybe you think about moving some of these guys but I, I would just continue trying to build if I were them for now and i you know maybe if it's like the seventh pick or or a pick of similar quality and another first and like a decent player like then maybe you think about it for ananobi but as the problem is as soon as you trade og ananobi you're looking for og ananobi <laughs> right like uh what else we got here related to that the blazers are as expected looking for players who can help them more immediately they're intending to keep damian lillard the number seven selection is a part of that and there's this lingering question and and honestly this will be resolved in in relatively short order yeah we're basically a month away from the start of free agency how awesome is that with because like blazers can do they can go either approach in the immediate they can either stay over the cap they have this trade exception from the cj deal which is about 20.9 million dollars and as luck would have it both ananobi and jeremy grant fit within that so they can stay over easy way to do it then they bird rights potentially on nurkic could be could be useful and everything with Simons, everything else. The Blazers do have a pathway to clearing significant cap space. However, you need a reason to do so. And it's they're not a team that is just sitting out there and you don't have to be, you, know, you have to make sacrifices to do that in terms of some of the cap holds and guarantees and everything else. So to me, the way this happens is yes, you're not supposed to tamper and all stuff. Have a basic idea from Zach Levine's representation of whether Zach Levine would be interested in an offer should you be willing to make it. And if not, I don't think there's anybody else that is simultaneously available and good enough to make those sacrifices and part of why that matters potentially why they might have to make a decision earlier rather than later is because of the guarantee date for josh hart which is actually before the league year turns over but if you think of it like the two of us do that josh hart at 13 million dollars is totally reasonable you maybe can kick that can down the road to the beginning of free agency to see where things lie oh yeah clearly you're you just end up guaranteeing him and uh, you can certainly get off for that money i would say but at some way or another now the timing issue is also interesting because based on what i have here jeremy grant makes 20 million this year but that goes up to 21 million next year 
$20,955 or $955,000 is the number that I have. This trade exception is $20.9 million, $20,864,000. So if you want to acquire grants, at least as I see it here, you have to, I'm not sure if if Pincus's list includes the plus $100,000 that you get. I'm guessing it probably does because he's usually very thorough of, as I'm looking at the list of trade exceptions here. So they may actually have to acquire grant into that trade exception before the league year turns over which you'd think at the draft is, is something that they could do anyway so that that's just a, a quick note financially that that deal if it is agreed to at the draft which surely it would be would be well and it's also just the selection on the pick you know it, if right if yeah you but it's just a trade. question of like when it would actually be like clearly the deal would be agreed to at the draft but when it would actually have to be yeah. consummated and be and right at and that time jeremy grant and zach levine are mutually exclusive for the blazers as unless they're doing something really ambitious that i can't really see so well, it could be there could be a sign and trade i guess uh, uh i mean there could be uh, and that could include Hart, and it could include mr little could include anthony simons potentially uh, as well though the math would get difficult on the base year compensation there could include a sign and trade of use of nurkic i don't know there, there are ways that it could maybe happen uh but i i agree with you it's largely probably not gonna be the case um anything else in the blazers or can we move on we can move on so sacramento this is actually something you alluded to i wanted to expound on it that and james ham had this report on his king's beat podcast it slipped past me a couple of weeks ago that dante divincenzo and his camp were upset with the kings because divincenzo had he started would have met the starter criteria and been eligible for a higher qualifying offer now the difference there is a couple million bucks if he would have made it he only had to start i think like seven games for the kings and he didn't end up starting that and their alva gentry had said maybe he's going to start and then they just decided not to and so that that was maybe as they attempt to negotiate a restricted free agent deal with him they have more leverage because his qualifying offer isn't as high and divincenzo and his reps think that they kept out of the starting lineup just to give him less leverage in the restricted free agency that's uh you know those sorts of rumors pop up when you're the kings hopefully they didn't actually do it that way and then this is another thing that came out maybe about a week and a half ago or so and i just wanted to note it that angeli ranadive vivek's daughter is going to be taking on an assistant general manager job with the stockton kings and that of course got a, a lot of derision and pushback ah ha ha kings blah blah nepotism etc plenty of teams owners have their offspring involved in the team whether it's Patrick Fertitta and I don't think Patrick Fertitta ever went to be an assistant general manager of a G League team which is basically about as entry level as you can be to start off like this really is starting from pretty close to the bottom up right there's Kirk and Kent Lakeham Kirk has become a, a fine executive and Kent has followed that path also or whether I think it's Nick Arison Mickey Arison's son or uh, I think Dan Gilbert's one of his sons is very young and is becoming quite active in the Cavs. The bus siblings are involved in the organization quite a bit as well. So let's not act like this is some uh unprecedented thing that's just only something that the kings would do it's so ridiculous for them to do this i mean you can argue about nepotism or not but assistant gm of the g league team that's not a position where it's like oh man you are screwing over your team by putting someone in who doesn't have like amazing basketball expertise which you know it doesn't seem like she has at the stage other than having played some so this is a pretty entry-level job like if you're a talented person like this is where you'd start you 
kind of teach people the ropes that's what this job is and so yes part of it is just it's the kings it's vivac he's done a poor job as george but also i think it's somewhat of a sexist reaction to be honest for everyone to flip out about this when if you weren't flipping out about any of these other myriad situations with offspring of owners and for me as you mentioned it's it's about the level of the position this is assistant general manager for the g league team if it was assistant general manager for the nba team i would be hitting the roof but that's not this is a offspring of the owner starting close to the bottom and learning the business type of thing right and and it could potentially shift if she is promoted more quickly than i mean this is gonna be hard because it's gonna be internal the merit and all that like is it a could it be a slipper slip maybe but we will have to evaluate with the context that we are given over time and that's just the way it can go yeah i mean this oh my god you're not qualified to be assistant general manager of the g league team like okay like if you're a talented person that's where you would be brought in to begin with in a lot of these cases in some free agency speculation looks like the the expectation among league personnel is that jalen brunson is going to go back to the dallas mavericks we discussed that at length when we did the jake fisher again by the way oh it's fisher again to the when we discussed that at length when we did the mavericks offseason preview which of course you can listen to and then also the knicks are not particularly interested in college and Sexton there are and finding a landing spot for him we've talked about the complications of his negotiations because how much is another team going to pay what is what is his risk premium here does he want to you know think about like taking the qualifying offer so you can be an unrestricted free agent in a year would you try to do a short-term deal somewhere else so you can actually have the chance to play with Karis Levert over him so and possible landing spots Pacers Pistons Wizards all of those make a reasonable amount of sense for him yeah and interestingly enough just had Tommy Shepard on earlier today and he mentioned that they are really looking for a point guard after they moved on from first Russell Westbrook and then Spencer Dinwiddie in the Porzingis trade and also noteworthy to come out of that interview if you didn't listen to it I asked him specifically will you extend the maximum possible contract to Bradley Beal which is a veteran with 10 years of experience that's five years 250 million dollars and he as is his right and I probably wouldn't say this either declined to answer that and there's nothing at least to my knowledge that prevents him from answering that to say yes we plan to make an offer you know that's not, not an indication of like illegal discussion to say we plan to make an offer unless it's someone on another team and then it would be tampering so i did think it doesn't surprise me that he didn't want to answer that but it is somewhat noteworthy that you wouldn't just say oh yeah we'll just give him the maximum contract and I, you know i don't think i would be necessarily throwing that maximum contract uh, at him i would possibly be trying to get at least a little bit of a discount there particularly given the fact that bradley beal didn't play that well speaking of fraught contract negotiations the new orleans pelicans and Zion williamson yeah brian windhorst was on i think it was on get up and said that we had those quotes from zion basically saying you know you put the max offer in front of me and i'll sign it that if we're talking about a max contract that is fully guaranteed that probably will not be on the table the pelicans are offer are expected to offer zion a large but not fully guaranteed extension and as is always the case in something like this have to consider and we won't get the full information what form do those non-guarantees take and like for the example of the Joel Embiid extension the original one you know back when he was a rookie scale player the those 
became guaranteed pretty early in the process if he played enough, and then it was only if he got cut. You know, so it, was, it, it made it a a pretty stark decision for the Sixers. Thankfully, Embiid played well enough. They can do that. That isn't necessarily the form this is going to take. And then, what are is, is it options? Is it escalators? And that will affect Williamson's willingness to sign the contract. Obviously, yeah. I mean, he said I couldn't sign it fast enough. I assume, and I think the verbiage there in his end of season presser was just extension. You know, I assume his assumption was oh yeah maximum extension i'll sign that and supposedly this is coming from ownership that wants to take more of a football saints year by year approach okay this is basketball let's let's see about that so if the joel Embiid contract were put out there to zion and zion actually just got cleared with this scan of his bone for full basketball activities without restriction this summer which is encouraging i also if i'm the pelicans might be interested in just waiting to see what he looks like when he comes into camp particularly given that the communication with him and his camp and also the way he stayed in shape has not been amazing over the years but if he gets offered that Embiid contract particularly because I think that contract was you know it would guarantee quite a bit before each season like a year or two years before and it was their injury exclusion based on specific body parts but obviously you would have to just waive him to recoup that you know I certainly would want to have a non-guarantee I would say rather than a team option if I'm Zion because I don't want to give them the option basically like if you waive me now you can't re-sign me at all as opposed to oh yeah we'll opt you out and then maybe we can bring you back or something like that so i i if they offer him an impede like contract maybe that will mollify ownership to be like oh it's technically non-guaranteed and especially if it's one of these things where like the guarantee date for these two years on the end that are not guaranteed is like a year beforehand in each year i think i probably would end up signing that if i were resigned and i think that would be a relatively fair deal in the end and i've also made this point too though danny that if it really comes down to it as the the pelicans you know i I would want there to be no player option obviously but in the end i probably would just sign sign to that contract because if he flames out and gets injured you're just fucked as a franchise anyway you're going into rebuilding you just got ingram and basically that's it at that point in terms of long term and like herb jones who's a good player but he's not a star player he's going to be you know the second best player on a playoff team cj will be too old by that point so to me just sign it keep him happy go for the upside play i still would honestly be more worried about the pelicans about him wanting to leave at the end of that contract than him getting injured during that contract because it's just what else are you gonna do with that money anyway where are you going if he does get hurt is it yeah you might have 30 million dollars on the books or whatever it is but like you're fucked anyway so what is having an extra 30 million dollars on the books gonna do at that point when you're trying to win an nba championship and to me the best way to do that is to make sure zion williamson is happy and locked up anything else we need to hit news wise uh yeah mitch kupchak's extension is a two-year extension again per jake fisher now we don't know whether there is a team option on the end of that or not too it is a multi-year extension technically so this could just be very kind of stopgap and then for sure Charlotte, it seems like it's going to be down to Mike D'Antoni and Kenny Atkinson for their coaching gig and atkinson is doing some research on them himself he does seem very kind of borrego like with like the zone and the young guy and kind of rah rah more analytics focused whereas d'antoni seems a little old for a young team like this that's trying to build but maybe is the guy who could unlock Lamelo. so we'll see which of those two they go with if it is indeed done of them neither has met yet with michael jordan who is uh in an out-of-market vacation i believe <laughs> was the phrase that was used
Speaking of a great place to go on an out-of-market vacation, the Miami Heat were just vanquished. Let's talk about their offseason. The expectation, considering how eventful last year was with not only acquiring Kyle Lowry via sign-and-trade, bringing in P.J. Tucker with the mid-level exception and giving Jimmy Butler that big money extension, the expectation is that Miami will have a more subdued 2022 offseason. And that is a reasonable expectation, though there are a few front offices that have been willing to make large changes than Pat Riley and Andy Ellsberg, who is a collective bargaining agreement wizard. Part of why it seems like things are going to be more stable is that they made all these other commitments to the players and you do have PJ Tucker lingering, but also because the Heat don't have some of those organizational constraints, depending on what Mickey Harrison is willing to pay, they are not going to be subject as currently expected. They're not going to be subject to the hard cap unless they acquire somebody new via sign trade and there should have some wiggle room below the tax. So to me, there are two big threads here. One is P.J. Tucker. The second is Duncan Robinson. Which of the two do you want to start? With? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't necessarily limit it to just those guys. Um, to, I, me, actually, to me, those are the biggest. Yeah. Well, let, let's start with Robinson because if the Heat, they're always going to be interested in a star. And whether it's potentially trading for Donovan Mitchell, he's supposedly not available right now. I don't think he'll be available at the trade deadline either because they're not going to trade away Donovan Mitchell right before the All-Star game in Utah. Stop me if you've heard this before with Kemba Walker in Charlotte. But Bradley Beal, maybe even Zach Levine for that measure, the Heat are always talked about as potentially being in these deals and as guys wanting to go there and surely they could use another big gun on the perimeter and as of right now the heat have more flexibility than they're really known for they have 21.8 million dollars below the apron they don't have a big trade exception though so anyone that they bring in they would have to match salary with duncan robinson only makes 16.9 this upcoming year was out of the playoff rotation obviously but i think still a valuable player it's just that Max Struess is better than him, and that's why he was playing ahead of him. But it's going to be great for to have Struess, Vincent, and probably Omer Yurtsevin, who they'll have as the backup center next year, all on minimum contracts. That gives you some pretty good flexibility, even when you have Butler at 37, Bam at 30, and Kyle Lowry at 28 for next year, and then potentially P.J. Tucker back uh, on his player option for 7.4. I do think, though, ultimately, unless they were also to include, well, so Tyler Hero then makes 5.7 next year as well, and he's got these extension negotiations. Even so, you would probably have to, like, get one of your free agents in on a sign-and-trade to get enough money to bring back, say, a Zach Levine or, I mean, Kyrie Irving doesn't really seem like a Heat guy, but Levine uh, seems like the one, or Bradley Beal. Those are the two guys you think might be involved there, but, you know, Beal, his contract is 42.7 that he would need to start with unless he's willing to take less and Levine would start at 36.6 yeah and and it would be easier for Beal with an opt-in logistically because if he's not then it's a sign and trade and you have you're subject to the hard cap yeah and Beal and Levine don't necessarily have a ton of leverage it's like oh hey I'll sign with this team that has cap space yeah maybe Levine could say San Antonio maybe that's where that buzz is coming from um so it would be maybe they could do it but I think it would be quite difficult. They might have to do it with the Tucker on it. Hey, maybe they could just sign Udonis Haslam as a final party 
parting gift to like a one-year ten million dollar contract <laughs> to like <laughs> to, uh, and just tell him you don't have to, you don't have to ever play you don't ever have to appear on the bench for the other team that would be because yeah, then they, they you wouldn't be Mr. Miami it has to be a three-year deal to be in a sign and trade but the second two years could obviously be non-guaranteed uh but if you're Washington and you're Levine or, or, or you're Washington and you're Beal or you're Chicago and Levine if he wants to be in Miami Tyler Hero is like a pretty nice piece to get back and also Miami has their 27th pick this year they could trade their 23 pick as well and they can also trade 28 or 29 they could even potentially trade 27 and 29 so they could trade up to three first round picks in theory there 27 would be a little bit tricky because they owe this pick to OKC that's top 14 protected in 25 and then unprotected in 26 but you could do some first allowable draft language and probably get there probably get there or of course uh you could go back to okc and say hey can we take the protection off in 25 if i'm okc i would probably actually want to just keep that unprotected in 26 instead given that jimmy butler has a 50.7 million dollar player option and in that year um so yeah again i mean i think if either of those guys Beeler or levine wanted to be there and if they could make the money work by a sign and trade that they could and duncan robinson's not a bad player on his contract either. so a hero robinson yeah you take on whatever million dollars of dead money with this guy that you're signing on a sign and trade that you have bird rights on like they've got bird rights on deadman too uh they've got bird rights on oladipo who we'll talk about in a second that's actually and then you've got a potential for as many as three first round picks like i think the heat certainly have the ammo to get it done to get one of those two players if they want to be in miami which of course is the big question or shit they could just trade kyle lowry too <laughs> which if, I if if they I wanted would be happy about that but not kyle lowry i would guess uh, and no no i don't think so nor nor would jimmy butler well maybe jimmy and, butler. Well, and, so, and so the other question on that front for miami is let's say it's a narrow field of players that could potentially be interested if that doesn't materialize for whatever reason is it better to keep duncan robinson to some degree an established commodity on a reasonable contract even if you're kind of underutilizing him because you have max Drews, or do you try to convert that into something else whether that is a different player that fits what you're trying to do right now but that also presents other risks like maybe you think that player is more of an injury concern maybe maybe it's you know aggregation or something else and my inclination here is that the heat will aim high and if aiming high doesn't lead to anything far from the worst scenario for a team that just had the best record in the east and made the conference finals despite being shorthanded then you might actually just as best you can keep that part of the powder dry and see what happens at the deadline see what happens in 2023 offseason yeah that's a, a possibility i mean i think the deadline is not bad now again like jeremy grant would be a really nice fit with these guys particularly to just let butler coast much more during the regular season and he's largely done that the last couple of years but this would make that even easier but would you give up the assets necessary to make that happen like i don't think jeremy grant is enough of an upgrade to me to if, assuming the asking price is what we think it is to well it, yeah it's a first round pick and like a decent young player you know if it's just like hero hero and robinson straight up for grand i don't think i would do that if i were miami i do think miami should seriously explore moving hero though i, I agree know that they will but i think he's about to get overpaid and i think he 
he could have been better in these playoffs. Like he, he, the groin was like kind of bothering him a little bit. And then after game three, he made it a lot worse apparently. But I think I just, I think he's, there are a lot of factors that can kind of lead to him being overrated and just how hard it is to deal with him defensively when you're trying to build this switching system that could just be even more of a, of a monster. So I'm not saying just give him up for nothing, but particularly when you consider what his contract demands might be, and you'll get an idea of that obviously as the off season begins. But you know, if he's like, Oh, I want to max contract and he's just not willing to sign for anything less than that now that's a a problem for another team that you might trade him to too but uh, and you can always just play the restricted free agent game for him as well and also if you don't extend him then you can always move him at the deadline if you extend him then you're not gonna be able to move him due to base year rules so uh while i don't want to get too much into like what hero's value is on the market i do think that is just a massive component of this offseason but i i think it's just miami's always a sleeping giant on these moves you know no one would have had them going after and getting jimmy butler for example around this time in 2019 i, I mean I, I they've got the ammo to do something pretty sexy here and with robinson a guy who's kind of superfluous to but still i think is a someone that other teams should value at the price that he's at they've got some matching salary that they can move pretty easily here um anything else you want to talk about just kind of on the big move front or should we get into uh get into pj tucker's free agency we can get into tucker and signed last year with the heat has a player option worth 7.4 million dollars and tucker if he opts out becomes an unrestricted free agent the heat would have non-bird rights which would allow them to give him a 20 percent raise off of last year's salary and that could be maybe something in the mold of like what Jamichael Green has done a couple times with the Denver Nuggets where you get another one plus one which gives you by virtue of it being a second year you can get a veto on that there'd be some appeal for PJ Tucker if he wants longer term commitment I mean Miami just gave Jimmy Butler a big one so maybe they are more willing to do that than I would expect but Tucker given his age going too many years with him could be an issue but I I think for PJ it's more about where do you want to be for the next year plus and Miami's a pretty damn great great place for him there yeah now PJ even at 37 I think he'll have his pick of the litter absolutely teams at the full tax pyramid level would a team go three years for him at that it'd be a little bit less than the year of his his player option which is a little over seven million like you're saying they have bird rights on him you know a one plus one maybe with a slight raise could be useful and the other thing frankly that they could do if there are issues acquiring a player in a sign and trade and they need to stay below the hard cap would be a little wink wink of hey we'll bring you back on a one plus one at less and then we'll take care of you next year you know, it wouldn't be the first time the heat have done something along those yeah, lines because then they can use early bird rights and go higher go back up more they wouldn't have full but early bird should be sufficient one would think one would think but obviously they need tucker back they don't really have any fours on this roster that work you know they need an upgrade on markeith morris that's one of the other things i think they should be looking for there's also the option of course of just i mean they have as i mentioned even if they bring back tucker they'll have 10 guys under contract and they've got that that includes their draft pick at 27 but they still would have 21.8 million below the apron so they could go get into the full mid-level exception realm as well they bring back caleb martin i don't know how much he's gonna get necessarily he says he wants to be back because he improved there but i think with his restricted rights you know they should be able to get him for less than five million per season 
season, well, would be my guess. And one thing I want to note on the Heat, using the non-taxpayer, is that would hard cap them again, and that would right. take some moves off the board, but to, depending on, on everything, yeah. for that league year. So it is a very distinct choice that Pat Riley has in terms of whether to use the non-taxpayer mid-level because you kind of need to know, and considering some of the Heat's negotiations, you know, if it's not somebody like Levine or Beal could extend into the season, you could see them be reluctant to use it by virtue of just that tying their hands because that's one of those few like unbreakable bonds. Yeah. And they could, you know, if you think about just what it costs to fill out the roster, they've basically got about 15 million to work with between bringing back Caleb Martin and the non-taxpayer mid-level. And then they also could just bring back Victor Oladipo as well, who I think particularly bringing him back if maybe you're not trading Hero now, but if you do trade him you need another two so he could be insurance there and and so yeah maybe i think unless there's somebody who just is like so awesome to bring in at the regular mid-level maybe i would just limit my offers to the taxpayer mid-level just to keep that flexibility available and that connects with oladipo but so oladipo's situation took the minimum to to stay in miami after they acquired him during the prior season doing so gives miami full bird rights on oladipo he is unrestricted, so Oladipo can go wherever in the world he wants. And what sort of assurances or expectations the Heat put on playing time is an open question. But also, how many other teams are really interested in Oladipo? What is the sales pitch? Do they think that he can be a valued guard off the bench? I think that is a very useful role for him because Oladipo played with defensive intensity. I don't love him like running the show offensively, but he can be a secondary creator. And that can be very important on a second unit you're leaning on one guy but then if you know if they that player has a little trouble getting going or is injured they could go with Oladipo so does he have another offer at the non-taxpayer mid-level or the Heat could potentially be amenable via a sign-in trade conceptually I wouldn't expect it to be the case but maybe that's a way to make certain things work my expectation is that Oladipo is going to remain in Miami and especially if Tyler Hero kind of starts making a little bit noise then it becomes a clearer path for Oladipo to training to, to playing time and he's 30 so after these years in the wilderness being on a good team having an opportunity to succeed my expectation is that's enough for him but it only takes one or two teams coming out of the woodwork to totally change that equilibrium like let's say i'm not saying it's definitively them let's say detroit if detroit says there aren't that many good two guards on the market if we're not getting the best guys we'd rather roll the dice on oladipo than lonnie walker or divincenzo then you could maybe be in some issues yeah and i i would view oladipo as a third guard level of performer right now so his market may be assuming he's deemed to be healthy somewhere in the 10 million dollar per season range maybe a little bit above that but not too far above that particularly when you consider that his skills will probably be a little bit in decline at 30 even acknowledging that he's coming back from the injury i'm going to make a prediction though and again take this with a grain of salt this i'm not based on any inside information i think the heat use whatever mid-level they end up using on Danilo Gallinari. Ooh. They tried to trade for him before. Gallo likes his beach destinations, and he'll seems pretty likely he's going to get waived by the Hawks. He'll already be due five million, either the Hawks or someone he gets traded to. So my guess would be, and particularly during the regular season, they give him like that stretch four element. <laughs> We're gonna have a Gallo versus Dragic for the mid-level exception fight. 
Yeah, that could be another one too, potentially, if Dragic wants to go back there. In but the they, already, they already have yeah. Gabe Vincent. I think Gallinari has a clearer spot in the rotation right. as it currently exists than... Yeah, and he could just be a nice regular season player for them, space the floor, score a little in isolation at the four. I don't think he'll be a great playoff player for them. Otto Porter is something they could certainly look at as well, you would think. Uh, Chris Boucher is maybe kind of a more backup center option with a little more versatility and athleticism. Like, I do think this team needs to get a little more athletic in the front court outside of bam that that would be nice so you're not you're not playing butler or caleb martin at the four you know they could also just get into like the regular backup center market although that seems like more of a minimum and i i've got no problems bringing deadman back as well just don't plan on him playing in the playoffs at all yeah i'd like to see them you brought up gallinari a, a four would be a useful guy for them to have and who is interested in in you know like potentially let's say it's the taxpayer mid level like the, the heat will do better with that than most teams especially with the combination of market and six likelihood of success i mean if this team could stay remotely healthy they can be they'll be in the mix and i don't think they're a real restricted destination just because the logistics of that either through a sign-in trade are are, are too difficult so they'll, they'll do well though i'm confident in that yeah they also have the non-guarantee of haywood highsmith 50k of that guarantees on july 1st that sort of indicates maybe that they would look to send him back to the g league if they do waive him the heat also one of the only teams that have two different players on two ways that's contract whose contracts extend already into next season michael Mulder and javante smart they already actually have both of those filled they could of course cut those players that is that is a possibility but that does limit some of Miami's spending power or like kind of second round pick latitude stuff well, they but could also they, yeah like us like you're saying they could just cut those guys cut, they, they also them. miami also doesn't have a second round pick as of now because they never do. traded theirs they never do yeah that that's a that's a better <laughs> version than me explaining where all their picks are going all right well this is a fun one glad we were able to get this one done and we'll talk to y'all again soon probably tomorrow till then